Joe presents TKO together with 32 Red. Welcome to round 15 of TKO on Joe together with 32 Red. We're a podcast and YouTube show and we'll be with you every Thursday. Very pleased to say our guest today is a man whose voice you'll recognise very, very well indeed. He's called some of the biggest fights of the last couple of decades on BBC Radio 5 Live. None other than Mike Costello. Um, pleasure to have you with us. Thanks for coming in. Great to be here. What were we listening to this morning? Was it your entrance to the, the quick fight? Yeah, I love that one. I always I like to listen back actually the radio stuff you always watch a fights back on TV but I like to get the radio commentary too whether it's yourself or even Jim Neely back home radio also yeah yeah but um, when I came out against Quig in Manchester you and big, you and Big Tony Bellew it was it was amazing I get goosebumps maybe it's just me listening to it because mm. it's about me but. Yeah, it was brilliant to send it into the boys in the group chat. So, but there is something about you painting your own pictures while you're listening, and, yeah, and, yeah. and, and revisiting Definitely. where you were at the time. I, I completely agree. And um, when was that fight? 2016. Yeah, just over three years. Still ago. get yeah. goosebumps about that now. It's just different. The radio commentary's different. I like listening back. That was a really interesting instance because <coughs> that was one of those nights. If you remember, Jim Watt on Sky scored it a draw, and, and one of the judges yeah. as well. And people all around ringside kept turning around and asking me and Tony Bellew how we'd scored it. And we, we just kept saying, wide, wide, wide. And well, we couldn't understand you what else right. was going. But, we just, <laughs> but at that time, yeah. sometimes that's when you do have to hold on to what you believe and your experience and, yeah. and just go with what you feel you, you are seeing and not be, you know, what I say is be a shepherd, not a sheep. Don't listen to everybody else around there. You know, there might be a time when you get it wrong. There was a similar instance just before Christmas with Tyson Fury. I mean, we had him winning everything for the first four yeah, and five yeah. rounds. Then I get a message from my producer saying some of the American journalists have got Wilder in front. Well, turn to Andy Lee. And, mm. What are we doing here? Are, are there chairs around the right way kind of thing? It's, you know, and that's when you, as a commentator, it takes experience. If, if that had been my first fight ever, mm. I might have thought, oh, I Jim's can't get this yeah. wrong. I can't get this wrong. And they're all right. Jim Watt and all these guys have been doing it for years. So you, just, you have to hold on to your nerve, you know. You have to, but also part of your job, presumably, is to gauge the public opinion. If there are murmurs around ringside... Is it your, part of your job to deliver that information to, to the audience that are listening? Absolutely. And that's what's changed over as recently as the last five years, you know, this, this surge of social media interest. I know Twitter's been around for, for a decade now, but it's only the last five and six years that there's been this, this real constant attention during fights. And, and you've had reporters at ringside who are doing live texts and then they're doing round by round by round. And so there is this, this constant need for information as it's actually happening, rather than just a general drift of, of how the fight's going. So we often do say what, what others around ringside are saying about fights, and, and quite often they're, they're very close, and so that's, that's worthwhile. We were talking last week about how much social media's changed the, the game, weren't we? Yeah, and it has massively. Everyone has an opinion, and, and everyone can now voice their opinion because of social media. <laughs> Whether that's a good thing or a bad <laughs> thing, I'm not, I'm not quite sure. You're not on our Twitter, are you, Mike? No. There's a fake one going about? I remember... There, there was a one there for was a while. Yeah. 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 For a Which while. I laughed about. Instead he started <laughs> digging and, and swearing at Eddie Hearn and then it started to get dangerous. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, really calling Eddie Hearn out. And it was funny, actually. It was around the time of, um, of Brexit. And, and he was in negotiations. Eddie was in negotiations with Jesse Vargas to fight mm. Kel Brook. And because of Brexit, the value of sterling weakened against the dollar. 
And so there was this conversation going on between Eddie Hearn and Bob Arum and Jesse, Jesse Vargas about how the terms might have to change because of what's happened to the pound against mm. the dollar. And I was getting all this because Jesse Vargas thought he was talking to yeah. the BBC boxing correspondent and therefore wants to get it out there. Is, <laughs> uh, <laughs> all these negotiations. So, but it was when this guy started to really lean on Eddie Hearn that I had to... To, and apparently, it happened five times before they finally. The thing is, you have you have you think these guys you have a clear when there's a party account that's funny and you know it's a clear party. Yeah, that's funny. But when yeah. someone's actually impersonating another yeah. person, mm. it's like it's weird. Yeah, it's it's weird, really yeah. It's yeah. a lot of time on your hands to yeah. be doing something like that. Yeah, yeah. I think it was Buncey that actually. Um, that sort of outed and said, just so you will know, Mike hasn't got a Twitter account. It was Bunce. Yeah. It was Bunce. Who else had one that I was following? John Fury. John Fury. Yeah. That's the one. Yeah, yeah, there was another fake one. I was following him for a um, while. Of course, you and Steve do the BBC Radio 5 Live boxing podcast every Monday as well. Yeah. Steve is obviously the, the quiet one of the two of you. Um, <laughs> you. You've been working with Steve for, for years and years and years, haven't you, at the BBC? Yeah. When does that go yeah, back um, to? When, do you remember well, when I mean, you first met him? Personally, it goes back to when we were kids boxing on the, the South London circuit. And... Frankly, we were both failures, and that kind of informs what we do. You know, we we worship people like Carl, and I, mean, I can say this happily in his company, in in a way that I'm not sure everybody else or many others in the media could, because we were failures down at our you know grassroots club level. When they walk to the ring, you know, when he's four and five steps away from our commentary position, I get this this feeling in the pit of my stomach because I'm I'm like this Walter Mitty character. I wish I was doing what he was doing, but I wasn't good enough. I wasn't brave enough. So that's where I go back to with Steve, and and then we, if you like, we we kind of rediscovered each other through the media, through boxing. He started out as a, if you like, a, a down the table. A reporter with the Daily Telegraph, and I started with the BBC World Service. And and in those early days, we we had no idea that we'd one day be going to to Las Vegas or you know outdoors at the Titanic at Belfast and and all those major major nights, mad nights, nights that we dreamt of being part of as as kids. And you know we just gradually worked our way up. I didn't know you. Came, I knew Bonds boxed before. I didn't know you boxed yourself as a kid. And maybe that's like. That's probably where the passion comes from. Like when yeah. you, you can hear it in your voice when when you're listening to the radio commentary, there's definitely passion there. It's probably mm. because you know the game, not know it as a spectator, but you've done it. What I always say, Carl, is I, you know, I do have an insight because of what I did, but everything I did was over three rounds. Mm. What I can't get my head around is what you do when it gets to eight, nine, and ten. You know, I've heard Ricky Hatton and many others say that at that point. However much you trust your trainer, whether it's Jamie or whoever, it ultimately comes down to you. And I, I, that's where I, I haven't got a window into that eight, nine, ten, and when you've really got to drag it up from somewhere. You know, in, in a sense, as an amateur, you can always see the finish line. It's only ever nine minutes mm. away. Mm. It's, it's very different. And, and I remember many people laughed and dismissed and dissed the fight between Floyd Mayweather and Conor McGregor. But there was a fascinating comment from McGregor at the end of the fight. And he said, he sat down on his stool after the fifth round. This was, was at the press conference. He's drinking whiskey, but he still had enough time to get serious. And, and he said, I sat down at the end of the fifth round. And he said, Jesus Christ, there's still seven rounds to go. He and, looked exhausted. And that, so he was, he was paying a massive compliment to all of these people mm. without really mm. understanding what he was saying at the time. You know? And that, the length of those fights and the grueling nature of those fights and where where these people are prepared to go, you know, is, is what makes it so absolutely fascinating for me, both, you know, 
before and leading up to the fights, after the fights, but mostly on the night of the fight. You know, there is no moment, there is no place like ringside anywhere in sport. I've been lucky enough to cover a lot of sports. I cover track and field athletics, which means I'm front and centre for the Olympics, the number one sport in the Olympics, athletics. But apart from Super Saturday at London 2012, there's nothing that can match a, a big fight night. And, and as far as we're apart here, Chris, this is, well, you know, this is how far we are mm. away from yeah. the ring. There have been times when I've had blood on my notes. That's how close we get to, to the very best of elite sport. So on fight night, we always hear about the fighters' preparations. What about your preparation? Because you're putting all of your concentration into, well, up to 36 minutes of action, plus the, the intervals as well. Where does your prep start for a big fight week? The prep actually starts, and maybe this is unwittingly, when the fight's announced. Because you're then starting to weigh up how the fight's going to go. Immediately on air, you're asked who you think is going to win. Mm. But it's... It's a very gradual build-up. And for me, with boxing, it's very different to the other sport I work in, athletics. If you've got, say, for example, Mo Farah in a 10,000-meter race and you've got 25 athletes and you've just got these, and I mean pages and pages of information, and again, you have to hold on to your nerve in a different way there. Whereas with boxing, there are only two men up in the ring. You're never going to get the identity wrong, which is a big factor in athletics. But the danger is there that you, you make it so boring that all you say is left, right, left, right, left, right. Mm -hmm. So... During the week of a fight, I find you just absorb all the information. You go to the media workout, you go to the press conference, you go to the weigh-in. And at those events, you know, I mean, different fighters have different approaches to, to what the media workout means and, and how important it is. But you start to get a sense of how big the fight is and how it's playing out around the general public. You'll be there talking to, there might be American journalists over or you're over in Vegas. So you're getting the flavour of how the Americans see the fight or whatever. You talk to trainers, talk, even talk to fans. And you just, the lines around the fight, the rumours around the fight all start to, to circulate. And that, that, informs the commentary of the fight rather than a list of how many fights you've had when you were born where mm. you're from and all of that because by the time you've covered somebody who's at world championship level you pretty much know most of that mm. you know we don't have that many world champions that you know have to keep long catalogues of of stuff it, uh, more of it's and, and i'm i'm very aware that that listeners don't want to hear just lists and lists of statistics all the time. And then the danger is when, you know, for radio, on, on television, you can see it if, if the commentators are talking over each other or they've moved on to an anecdote and suddenly someone's on his back. In a sense, that doesn't matter so much because you can see it mm -hmm. anyway. But on the radio, if I suddenly drift into Carl started at Midland ABC at the, at the age of seven, a boss suddenly gets hit with a left hook. You have to judge when you can introduce an anecdote rather than just go left, right, left hook, uppercut all night long. And that becomes tedious. You have to judge when you can just drop in a, an anecdote or just a, a line from the build up. You know, I saw his trainer during the week and he said this and maybe when the referee breaks them up or so you, you use that three or four seconds to just drop something in yeah know? do you think it's important to build like a relationship with the fighters as well yes yeah i do sometimes it comes down to personality you have different relationships yeah with with different fighters and that that i think can impact what happens afterwards carl you know i mean we were talking off air about about amir khan and this great contradiction that people are laughing about after the fight against Crawford when he talks about I had five minutes I didn't know I had five minutes and all this kind of stuff and I've had a bit of stick online I mean I'm I'm not on Twitter but of course I have to follow it and monitor it and I've had a bit of stick for not picking him up on that and I won't do that 
because he's been battered around the ring. He's not had a game of tennis mm. and a game of football. And that's a, a really difficult judgment to make as a, as a journalist, somebody who's a trained journalist. You know, I should be picking that up. But the, the, well, you've seen the images of it. It was filmed as well as recorded for audio. It's all over the place. There's no way I'm going to grill him at that stage. In fact, you'd have a solid argument to say you shouldn't have done the interview, Mike. And, and I'm not sure I'd have a, a persuasive answer for that. I had a similar stick with Tony Bellew's last fight against Usyk, and I interviewed him. We had the rights. Oh, so yeah. if you get the radio rights, you can wander up onto the ring apron. You've done it with Thomas Kane yeah. and all the rest. And, and I, I kept on at Tony, and he kept just saying, he's brilliant, he's brilliant, he's world class. And he was saying the same stuff. And people said, Mike, you should have let him go. He needed the thing is. I don't think that's your call. And I think, because I, I was talking about that fight, like, I feel like the way Tony was knocked out and hurt badly. I know TV and radio and stuff pay a lot of money to get access to these fighters, but I think in a situation like that, it's important to be assessed properly by a doctor first, I feel like, anyway. And I know maybe some big wigs in the TV companies or, or radios may not agree with that, but I'm just thinking someone should step in here I don't think it's on to you, but I think someone should step in and Tony Bell, you should be in, in the back room. See, that was part at. of my thinking, Carl, was that he'd been assessed by a doctor okay, and then had been led over to our side of the ring. So that was one of the reasons I continued with it. Later on, I realised that he'd done like 40 minutes at a press conference and was his typically voluble, articulate self. So that made me feel a bit better, but it doesn't change the fact that I had to make a judgment right there and mm. then. The difficulty, Carl, there is, and you'll know this, Chris, is that had I not interviewed him at ringside and all the other journalists, the newspapers, the social media websites and the IFL TVs had all got his reaction, all got his story, then I'm failing in my job. So this is the real dilemma and, and the balance you have to find. The post-fight interview is a really important part of the whole story. Mm. And if you don't get that, then unless the fighter has been taken away, you know, for, for medical attention, then you've, you've not actually done the whole job. And it is actually also, going back to what you said, part of what you pay for. You pay for that access as well. So, so on a big fight night, so be, say the Warrington fight, for example, when you've come out, the decision's not, not gone your way and you've, you've had a hard night in the ring as well. How difficult is it to go through the rigmarole of interview after interview how many would you say you have to do I can't remember what i done after the warning did I do did I speak to you you guys no no no, no. <laughs> but I'll tell you why I, the, the problem there for you Carl is that I mean clearly we go to the winner mm. so by the time he's done however many interviews on the on it, well you can't wait mm. forever yeah, yeah, yeah you know yeah I, I remember doing a few done my BT backstage afterwards didn't go to a press conference because it was I was hurt, like properly hurt, and like yeah. really, really tired. And I, and I got back to wanted to get back to the hotel. And actually, on the taxi ride back to the hotel, I asked, "Could I just, you know, go to the hospital here just to just to be safe?" Yeah. Um, but I felt like I remember doing the interview with with BT straight after the fight, and Frank kind of called me over into the interview with Warrington. I was beaten, so I was kind of like let the man talk he's won the fight but Frank got me involved as well and that's probably the only reason why I'd done an interview in the ring yeah. or I'd have been offside somewhere in the change room drying my eyes mm. crikey big kind of change in the last eight or nine years in the landscape of boxing certainly the stadium fight was brought back by the first Frotch Gross fight that led to Wembley in the second Yeah, certainly a memorable night for you that must have been right that was really really special I mean I remember sitting Virtually on the centre circle 
And again, it goes back to what I was saying earlier on about this hero worshipping. You know, I was thinking of looking around the stadium. The first thing I thought was what it must have been like for those athletes at London 2012. I know that wasn't the stadium that was used for London 2012, but I just looked around at the vast stands and and how far away they seemed from, you know, the the eye of the storm, if you like, Mm. and, and what it must have been like to compete at the games like that. And then thinking... You know, these guys, Carl and George, are going to walk from the dressing room and they're going to see something and hear something like they've never, ever heard before. And it was, you just get that wow factor as soon as you, as soon as you walk in and all the, the pitch is covered and it's, Some it night. was a really, a really special night. And it, you know, the, the punch that Frotch found is, is one of the all-time yeah. great, great punches. Unbelievable shot. And I can remember the way you summed up the fight in the moments after and everyone else is in just complete shock and as a, as a fan you go into disarray but you in that moment the difference between the you know the first Frotch Groves fight and the second is that you at least have some indication that you're maybe building towards the finish or something's happening whereas with that it was left at right hand and a quite a nip and tuck fight is yeah, suddenly yeah. over yeah. and you've got yeah. 80,000 people losing their minds but yeah. you have to absolutely focus because you're the eyes and the ears of the, of the listeners. Yeah. You can't deviate from task for a second. Yeah. And goes back to what I was saying about had I been in the middle of an anecdote there, oh. you know, and lost the moment, one of the great moments, mm. you know, in recent British boxing history. Now, again, through experience, because they were moving into a corner, I would never have, have gone into an anecdote at that stage. But that was just a truly truly remarkable it was one of those where somebody said to me after um after Usain Bolt won the 100 meters at the Olympics in 2008 and I've been lucky enough to cover every single one of his gold medal winning races and commentate on them and I went for dinner with uh, the great javelin thrower Steve Backley and an old coach of the British team called George Gandhi in Beijing afterwards and he said to me George that this old fellow George said to me when Bolt does something like that because he virtually danced across the line you just don't win Olympic finals like mm. that. He said, "How do you stop yourself saying me on air, you know, on, on the BBC? <laughs> yeah. Because that's, that's that, but that's actually what you've got to do. Yeah. You've got to get as close to swearing as you can because everybody in that crowd went, me, did you see that kind of thing? So mm. you've got to try and articulate exactly what most people in pubs or in the crowd are saying. You know, I was thinking that actually. How do you stop yourself from like in a moment like Frat Groves where it is a nip and tuck fight, and then suddenly it's over." How do you stop yourself from just saying, holy shit, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. That's it. Yeah. I look forward to when you're next at the conference. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the yeah. great, the great yeah. thing about it is often, actually, Buncey will give you the pitch. Because I can remember that I, I, it's almost etched in my mind, that frotch right hand. Because Buncey went, oh, like that. Yes. But you are just saying, and the right hand's laid him out. And you're going through the description so that you yeah. don't lose that. But with yeah. Buncey and the crowd, you've got your atmos and you've got the gravity of the occasion, which yeah. allows you to kind of focus on what you've got to do, I suppose. Yeah. 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 That Olympic 100 metre final in Beijing was something else. Because Powell was the favourite really going into that on yeah. form. And was the he'd only just had the world record taken from him. But he'd yeah. been... And Bolt had broken the world record, but there were doubts about him on the big occasion. Of course. Because he hadn't won anything at that well, stage. Well, he's silver the, the world champs in the 200 of the year before yeah. against Tyson Gay. And yeah. Yeah. Cool, you're lucky, mate. Yeah, and that's, yeah, it is. I mean, I often describe the 100 metres as, as the heavyweight championship of athletics because that, that's a, another event that can be won in the head, you know, in the, all the way through the build-up. And 
I remember a big race in Beijing, a world championship final between Justin Gatlin and, and Bolt. Basically, it was billed as a match between good and evil, the man who'd failed drug tests yeah. against it, you know, the, the saviour of the sport. And Gatlin had won 20 successive races on the way in, but I said he's won 20 races that didn't have Usain Bolt in them, and Bolt won the final. And I find that fascinating about boxing and about athletics, you know, the build-up. How much do you genuinely believe that you are... You know, I, I don't think you get to where you are unless you've got really, really strong temperament. Mm. But Carl Frotch said to me um, a few years back, he fought this American called Yusuf Mack. And when Mack mm -hmm. came over to a press conference at, in Nottingham, he started calling Carl a plastic Joe Kalzaki. So I said to Carl afterwards, you know, what's, what do you make of, of all that nonsense? And he said, Mike, he can say what he likes here, but when he puts his head on the pillow at night and those little demons creep up, you know, those demons of doubt, then does he really believe? And that's what fascinates me about races like the 100 metres, where you can absolutely lose it in your first stride. Mm. And look at the fight against Warrington. You know, it can change on the opening round. Yeah, yeah. You know, the whole, the tempo of the whole event, whether it's a fight or a race of that nature, when you're on your own. It's, it's different in a team scenario. I mean, one of the big differences between Usain Bolt and Asafa Powell was, was nerves on the, on the yeah. start line. You could visibly see Powell relaxed in every round, the semi-final, and then the final, he looked a different guy. Yeah. What about yourself? Because you've got to, especially in something like the 100 metres, you've got to sum something up from start to finish in, in nine, and, nine and a bit seconds. Yeah. Do you get nervous? Yeah. So when do the nerves start? Usually about, about mid-afternoon. But here's where boxing, even as a kid, even down at a lowly level, helps. Because I remember getting the same feeling kind of mid-afternoon in school and then sort of losing concentration, whatever we were doing in class, because I was only thinking about what was going to happen that evening, you mm. know, and, and building the whole event in my head in, in you know, in this, this tiny little schoolboy level. But I learned over time. I mean, I, I had about... 60 bouts in the end and and so I, I learned how to deal with nerves you know as you go through the grades I didn't go that high but you do you know you get to a stage where you box young lads that have got a bit of a reputation and you have to deal with that for maybe two yeah. or three weeks and and that's that's very similar to what dealing with a, a 100 meter final at the Olympic Games that was the first one I'd done for BBC Five Live so I really felt on trial the, the one in 2008 and those nerves appear in, in mid-afternoon but I've now got to that stage where I, I almost not enjoy it's the wrong word but once those nerves come I know that I'll you know I'll be sharp and, and ready it's, and, it's the big event of the whole Olympics as well and it's it like is the 100 meter. you and have it's, to get it right I love and it. it's all, it right. all I've worked for in, in the same way that you know you trained in your way and I've trained in my way and all the way through the years to get these gigs to be front and centre and that's something you have to remember as well and not let try and to not let it really overwhelm you and, and overburden you in that there are so many people who want to do what you're doing. You know, how many people are commentating on that 100 metres in the stadium? It's a really privileged position mm. to be in. And so you have to make sure that, you know, you don't let it drift by in a sea of nerves. You must hold on to how special it is, you know. And just, I, I remember walking four years later to the stadium at London 2012 and again I had these nerves, but I looked up and I thought, wow. There's all these people have paid 100, 200 quid for a ticket and, you know, and I'm going in tonight. And again, it was, it was Bolt who won. But mm. that's a challenge like no, It's a very different challenge to boxing because of, I mean, you said nine and a half seconds. I remember an old English teacher of mine said the average sentence that we speak lasts three seconds, like maybe the one I've just said. And so you've got three seconds, three, three sentences across that race. 
if you mentioned all eight athletes, it'd be gone. They'd be past the line. You know, if you blink, that's the difference between the first and the eighth man home. That's in time. So that's those are the margins you're talking about. You know, even at the longer distances, you know, Mo Farah won two races over 25 laps and 12 and a half laps, and his total winning distance was eight tenths of a second. So these are the margins that you've got, you know. But it's in boxing. It's it's you now you lean back from a shot and you make someone miss, you catch with a counter. If that first shot catches you, the counter doesn't land. It, the tiny margins at the mm. highest level. You mm. know? Also, I guess controlling your voice is an important part of it because you need to give yourself somewhere to go in the event that something unusual happens or suddenly you get that frotch grows moment or you know for the final straight of a Mo Farah race. Do you have to protect your, your voice in the build-up to fight week? Does it take a lot out of the vocal cords, do you think? Yeah, I mean, boxing is, is very different in that you are there right in the bear pit whereas in it you know in athletics you could be as as far as 50 or 60 meters away from the action so it's a very different strain on the voice because all of that crowd noise is is descending on the ring and you're and you're right there and it's the action is so relentless three minutes at a time three minutes at a time without any comments at all or any kind of breakthrough from Buncey or whoever you're working with in terms mm. of an ex-boxer so it's three minutes relentlessly of describing where they are in the ring and and going back to all those other things i was saying about not being too repetitive so it's 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 very different whereas it you know for a long distance race you know might you might let a couple of laps go by and just talk about mo Farah's background or whatever knowing that the only thing that could happen there that could trip you up would be him tripping up yeah mm. but you know there's there's much more pressure on those three minutes in, in a ring than there than there is anywhere apart from that 100 meter final for a boxing match it's got to be so difficult to describe a boring fight i think it's the best sport in the world when it's a quality fight and two guys are well matched but if it's a, a stinker and and it's not even nice to watch on tv as a radio commentator it must be so difficult to it describe is and, and, and again that's i mean you can then use more of that kind of anecdotal stuff and the background material people would say to you what well, where do you think you were best? What commentaries are you most proud of? And it's not necessarily those monster nights or even the, you know, the, the Olympic finals. Two really, really difficult commentaries I did were Tyson Fury against Vladimir Klitschko right. and David Hay against Nikolai Valuev. Mm -hmm. Now, as spectacles, they were boring as hell. But the one in, in um, Nuremberg, the David Hay fight, didn't have much of a, a, a crowd behind it. But the one in Dusseldorf had a, had a massive crowd. They were still cheering madly for, for Klitschko. So you do have to still spell out that although we're finding this tedious, the crowd here are loving it. So you have to go with them. But also what we were spelling out on both occasions is this is going to be a great night. It's not a great fight, but it is going to be. It looks like it's going to be a great night. Mm. But they're really difficult. Do you remember how you scored that fight, Fury and Klitschko? By three to Fury. Because mm. I, I had it pretty close as well. But yeah. people talking about the Klitschko, Joshua yeah. and, and, and Fury, Klitschko. Because time has elapsed, people think of that fight as a complete one-sided beatdown. Oh, and, yeah. and it wasn't very it was a close fight. Yeah. Mm. Uh, we'll come back to this in just a moment. You are listening to and watching TKO on Joe together with 32 Web with me, Chris Lloyd, and Carl Frampton. We're a podcast and YouTube show. You can subscribe by the normal channels. Right now, though, here's Alex Payne with something else from Joe. Thank you very much indeed. Yes, welcome to the House of Rugby, which seems to be falling apart at the seams as we continue through our series. James Haskell, the big totem pole around which we all dance. We are the rugby show that doesn't cover a lot of rugby, but we do have a lot of fun doing it. Do join us every Wednesday morning. I was going to say Tuesday, that's when we record. Every Wednesday morning, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. 
Thanks, Alex. Welcome back to TKO Round 15 with Mike Costello, BBC Five Live boxing and athletics commentator. Let's pick straight back up off those fights. I guess the point being, as you say, there's a difference between a boring fight in of itself, but actually the context and the narrative that, that surrounds that fight. And with both of those fights, the commonality was a changing of the heavyweight guard. So start yeah. with maybe Hay and, Hay and Valley because that chronologically was, was before. And that was one of those fights as well. I say that fights fall into to three categories. There are the fights that only boxing fans are interested in. There are the fights that boxing fans and general sports fans are interested in. And there are the fights that, for whatever reason, they envelop everybody. Everybody's interested in them. And this was one of those on that third category, simply because of the size of Nikolai Valuev. And when they stood together at press conferences and, and the weigh-in and whatever, there was... The, and, and, you know, you, you could almost hear the mum saying, oh, don't let him go in with that big fella. He'll never do it. And so that had a massive build-up. And there was such a conflict as well in, in terms of what ex-boxers and pundits and, and writers had a viewpoint as, as to who was going to win. You know, it was almost split down the middle that Hayes just too, too small for, for this fella. I mean, I had a, a viewpoint at the time. I, I couldn't see how he would lay a glove on him. And that's what happened. I mean, I got that one right. I've got many, many wrong in the past. But that, that was one where sometimes you see... You see a fight really clearly. I don't know if you find that, Carl, but mm. you, you see a fight really clearly and you can't understand why nobody else is seeing it. And, and in other times, you know, you just, you yeah, just get totally wrong, so, right? so wrong. And, and that's, that's the fascination of, of this sport. You just, uh, you just never know. You took over from John Rawlin yeah. when, he, when he moved to TV. Yeah. So you worked on, did you work on Athens, the Olympics there? Yeah, but I was working there for the BBC World Service. So I was working there as a as a kind of a general reporter. I did cover virtually all of the athletics in Athens, but I was right. working there and four years earlier in Sydney likewise as a as a general reporter. Right, okay. I've covered seven Olympic Games now. So um So you joined you joined the BBC at I've read sixteen, is that yeah. right? Yeah. Quite very young. It was a very different landscape. Mm. You'd never get into the BBC now at 16. I mean, for example, I got a job in the accounts department and, and that's now outsourced. It's not done by the BBC anymore. So there wouldn't have been that route, route in and then just pestered the, um, the sports room for anything, you know, and, and I got a job as a runner on a Saturday afternoon eventually um, without pay, but just running results, literally running results from the old teleprinters over to, over to a studio. So that was my way in without the necessary qualifications to go straight in as a as a broadcaster and not to give away your age but this is sort of mid to late 70s we're talking about so 76 yeah you're in a golden age of the fight game at this point yeah the kind of later years of Muhammad Ali just talk to me about what a what you were watching in terms of sport and, and boxing but also how were you watching it because it wasn't like it is these days was it still yeah. were you still able to watch the, the big fights in the cinemas were they still being screened in cinemas at that yeah. point yeah yeah, but I was too young because inevitably, you know, you'd have to go to school the next day. But my dad used to, I mean, I live in and have lived in South London all my life or in and around there. My dad used to go to the Lewisham Odeon to watch, to watch the big fights. Uh, the Ali fights were on in, in the cinemas. I'd in love that. All, all around the country. Yeah, I'd love to in the cinema now. would be great, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah. 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 Well, in fact, I mean, all the way through to, to even my professional lifetime, I watched... Frank Bruno against Tyson, Mike Tyson, the first fight at the London Palladium. 
And I tell you, it was just one of the best boxing experiences of my life. They had a huge screen which took up the whole stage. And mm. when the lights went down, it was the next best thing mm. to being there. And You've got an atmosphere, haven't you? It was, it was fabulous. They, they you know, had the stare down. And I remember Mike Tyson looked away, you know, after the referee's instructions, Mike Tyson looked away. And all the crowd started saying, 1-0, 1-0. <laughs> and then 15 seconds. I was going to say, it was over pretty quick, wasn't it? was on the yeah. deck. Yeah. So the 70s and 80s, you, you grew up in, it was, that was when the, the first emergence in the UK of the kind of war of the promoters, there was like this sort of cartel that was operating, yeah. sort of Mickey Duff and Jarvis Astaire and Harry Levine had contracts with the BBC. Yeah. And then it was, it was kind of Frank Warren that disrupted the status quo, I guess, that in the mid 80s, wasn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that created a big change. And that, and that competition was, was great for British boxing. And it meant, from what I understand from boxers at the time, it meant they, they started to earn a lot more money than they had previously done, you know, because there, there was now a serious challenger to the cartel that you talk about, as successful as they were. But Frank Warren was at that stage was, was a, a real, it was a new broom sweeping mm. through the sport and every, everybody knew about it, you know, and it was at a time post Muhammad Ali. So the sport needed something, not just here, but, but globally, you know, it, it, it needed something because you can imagine the the impact he'd made on the sport. And, mm. you know, I'm often asked if there's anything you could have covered, what would it be? And it would have been the rumble in the jungle in Zaire in 1974. Wow. Mm. To have, to have covered anything of Muhammad Ali. And that's, I, I actually went to his, um, covered his funeral nearly three years ago now. And, um, as morbid as it sounds, it was a, it was a massive, massive thrill mm. just to, to be able to revisit and see how, how special he was and the turnout at the memorial service. And yeah, it was, uh, it was really, really special. My dad mm. used to wake me up at, you know, five, six in the morning to, to tell me the results when he got back from Lewis Imodium. My mum used to, I mean, Mum and Dad are both from from Galway, and my mum used to say, "Leave him alone, leave him alone, leave him alone." <laughs> because I had school the next morning, but my dad would creep in and tell me tell me the results. And there was this really kind of weird, almost mystical coincidence that I got a call from the Five Live production team at twenty past five on this Saturday morning, almost to the minute of the time my dad used to come in and tell me the results. And they rang me to tell me that Ali had died, and you, we want you on air from six o'clock. Mm. And, that was a whole day's broadcasting about, you know, the impact that Ali had made. So that, that going back to what you said, that was the world I, that was the boxing world I came into. If you were at all interested in sport, then you couldn't avoid the luster of Muhammad Ali, whether you went into boxing or not. You know, he was a monster figure at that time. Mm. God knows what he would have been like now in social media, twenty-four-seven. Oh, I remember Ed Robinson tweeting about that. He said, "Imagine, imagine sort of a like an HBO." 24-7, you know, like they, when they do the build-ups. Yeah. So imagine that with Muhammad Ali. Oh, so that yeah. would just be something else, wouldn't it? Yeah. But I guess he set the precedent for the kind of talking and the braggado show in the way that we see with Tyson Fury and some of the other guys now. The problem is, though, Mike, is that we've almost gone the other way now where we have so much competition, so many different networks, and this kind of refusal to, to budge from certain promoters and certain networks that it's... We're at a stage, certainly now, that it's to the sport's detriment in some aspects and it's stopping some big fights from being made. Is that frustrating as someone who's been through those golden eras to see the situation that we're in at the moment? It is, and I have this kind of push-me-pull-you feel about it all because, again, going back to my background, I understand or have an inkling of what they do and therefore any fighter earning that kind of money for me is, is a reason to celebrate because there are plenty of people making money in the game and it's not always the fellows who take it on the chin. So... 
it may well be that Wilder and Fury and Joshua are going off on their, their different pathways at the moment, but they're all earning crazy amounts of money. And look, I know deep down the fans ultimately want those to meet. I think they will. At least two of those three will meet some sta- at some stage in the next year. But in the meantime, they're earning phenomenal amounts of money. I just think in, in my time in covering boxing, but also in being around boxers as well, and, and just, again, because of my background, I've been around a lot of low-grade boxers, and there aren't a lot of happy endings. No. I've said it before. There aren't a lot of happy endings. So if I hear about a bloke earning three, four, five, six, and more million dollars for a fight, in Fury's case, against Tom Schwartz, you know, given what he's done against Wilder, against Klitschko, I'm not digging that. I'm desperately frustrated and I'm, I'm unhappy that he's not fighting Wilder in the, re- in the rematch. But what, has he paid his dues or what? Yeah. You yeah. Know, and, and, and like I say, that boxers earning that kind of money. What's, what's the, I wouldn't know. I haven't done the research. What's the percentage? It's, it's a tiny, mm. tiny. Yeah, it's got to be. I, we spoke about this before. It's got to be, it's got to be less than one. It's probably less than 1% of boxers worldwide that can actually make a living after a boxing? Well, look, look just, we've got a thousand professional boxers in this country. How many of those wouldn't have to work right. as well? You know, yeah. you know, they call themselves professional boxers. They're actually semi-professional boxers, mm. aren't they? You know, so it's, it's not all the, about the glory, is it? It's, and you mentioned paying your dues. I kind of feel like, obviously, someone in your position, you, you know, you've just signed this, this deal, which, you know, is, I guess, a good deal for you, a top rank financially, but you would have gone so many years in the early days without being paid and you never get paid for any training sessions so that pay essentially is is backdating all of the hard work yeah. you've done over two and a half decades I it's suppose. a bit of a gamble because at the start you're kind of you get a few quid but that's what you're getting a few quid and and you're kind of living off from purse to purse until mm. you start to win meaningful titles and it's not even really about meaningful titles a lot of the time as well it's about fan base and it's about mm. tickets you sell because there's a lot of quality fighters who are world champions that probably aren't that well off because they're not selling tickets and there isn't the demand on TV and, and radio for them. I've been lucky enough that I've, I've got a big fan base and I've done pretty well, especially recently. Um, and this new deal with Top Rank as well. But there's years at the start where you're kind of going from fight purse to fight purse and that's what you're living off. And you're like, oh, I need another fight here because I'm running out of money. Mm. And that's the way it is for all boxers. And it, it can be even worse than that where... Box is kind of a side earning. They've got another job, and boxing's a, something else that's coming in. You know, especially the journeyman. We spoke to one mm. a few weeks ago on the show, and it's completely different than the guys at the very top end of the sport. Yeah, it is. So, just over two decades of, of commentating on some of the biggest fights, mm. which etch in your memory as, as your favourite nights to work on, the favourite fights. Talk to me about what sticks with you. There are many great memories. Those two that I, I mentioned are, are special for for the two reasons as to how difficult they were, but they were great nights in, in British boxing history. The one at Wembley, George Groves and, and Carl Frost, the rematch. The first fight in, in Manchester of, of uh, Frost and Groves was a monster. The, the one that really sticks out, I suppose, in terms of um, the commentary demand would have been Frost against Kessler, the, the rematch. Oh, the punches um, that were thrown. Yeah. That, that, was, as well. that was staggering. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but there are other ones you've been... doubled his punch output from the first to the second, I think, in that fight. Yeah. So it was just all out, wasn't it? Remarkable. Uh, the, the pair of them. Yeah, just one of those one of those instances where you talk about styles make fights and my god, it made a classic. Mm. But the first one in, in Denmark had been had been a cracker. 
And Fox had had problems, hadn't he, flying out? Was, it, was that during the ash cloud? Am I it right was, yeah. That? Yeah, and he'd been told that, that the fight was off. And so the, the Sunday before the fight on the Saturday, he had a family barbecue um, <sighs> because he was convinced it was Flat off. Me. And then suddenly, a couple of days later, it was on. But <sighs> there are surprise ones as well. I mean, uh, you know, uh, you'll accuse me of saying this because he's here, but, you know, of all the big nights he's had, it's maybe one that... The one that sticks out, you, you fought Chris Avalos um, mm. at what's now the Odyssey. Mm. The noise, I was doing it with George Groves. He was the co-commentator, and I just nudged him and said, take the, when you were introduced, take the headphones off and just get this real rather than, you know, as the, as the engineers are sending it to you. Mm. And the, the noise was absolutely ear-splitting, and it was just a fantastic performance when, mm. you, when you consider the, you know, the rounder picture. Just that, that was a, an amazing night, but they always are when there's almost like I, I describe some of those noises in, in Belfort. It's like a Latin heat, it, it's, a, it's a different kind of noise. It's, it's well, Katie it's Taylor really, at the Olympics, really, lad. yeah, yeah. See, I didn't see any of her fights because oh. I was always in the uh, athletic stadium, yeah. I was lucky enough to be there. At yeah, one. I, I was, this, I, it, it was, was different, yeah, yeah, it was different. The only one that got close was probably Anthony Joshua's final, really, but, yeah. But actually, I would say consistently yeah. the noise at Katie's. Yeah. You know, and that was in London as well. Hey, and we talk, we talk about the margins. I mean, you look at Joshua's fights. I mean, <sighs> all four of them were like wafer thin, you know, and just all Could the way be through. A completely different story. You're talking about margins again. Like that's if Joshua. A lot of people thought he lost the first fight. Savon, yeah, yeah Savon. <laughs> I might be honest. I thought he did. It's a different yeah. story. Yeah. And I think he won the fight against Camarelli in the final. Very close, but I, I'd give it to Joshua. But yeah. It was countback, wasn't it? It Was eighteen yes. all. It's like, yeah. and if, it, if something goes the other way. Then yeah. it's the story is is completely different. Yeah. But as a narrative, I mean that for it to go to count back, and I can remember the silence around the arena, mm. and there was a guy called Dan O'Sullivan, who's a local ring announcer who'd known AJ oh, for yes. a few years. Yeah. It was his job. They put the paper slip in his box. He sort of pulls the the slide down, so he knows the result, and that's it. And I was watching to see if he gave anything away, and he was absolutely poker face. <laughs> and he went the winner on count back, and I just remember when he announced Joshua's name, the whole stadium exploded, and that that triggered a new a new era completely commercially and, and you know the landscape changed again but yeah. I guess for you as you say you have to savour those moments and you have to understand that you're witnessing a piece of history because although that, that history lives on that moment goes within a few minutes and you yes. lose that so you've got to hold on to it haven't you? Yeah and, and sometimes you are aware as you, you know you walk to an arena you're aware in, in a very different way to, to the boxers themselves that this this is a night that might might resonate and for London 2012, I was very aware that these are um, races and events, um, and you get the same with fights that are going to be pulled out of the BBC's archives for, for mm. years, and like we're doing now with stuff in the 60s and the 70s, and it's going to have the name Costello next to it, and that's, that makes me really proud. Yeah, absolutely. I know one of the ones, and, and I hate to mention it, but you missed one of the, the biggest ones, Joshua Klitschko at Wembley, yeah. and just, yeah. just an epic night. Obviously, you were unwell at the time. Yeah. Um, difficult to, to know that you did miss something like that, I guess. Yeah, it, it really was. Um, and not just, not just because I was ill at the time. It was, it was one of those, again, that you've, you've worked so hard and so long to, to be in position for nights like that. Mm. You know? And people try and console you and say, there'll be another one, there'll be another one. But they, they don't come around very often. Those nights don't come in bunches. Mm. They really don't. No. No, they don't. Did you go to that? No, I was at a wedding. I always seem to be at weddings for big fights. <laughs> and I, I always end up watching, and the brides are never that happy when half the um, wedding party clear out to watch a big fight. But I was at a wedding watching that, and I remember just 
what a fade that was. Mm. What a fade that was. The crescendo of the noise in round 11, I think, because yeah. it was the perfect It was the perfect narrative for, for the crowd, wasn't it, really, in terms yeah. of both been down and then yeah. 11 was the... Has gone, gone down, got up, well, he, gone down, got up. And He answered so many questions, I felt, as well, yeah. Joshua, because it was kind of... He was just bowling everyone over and... He was hurt himself badly in the fight against Klitschko. So the question was always hanging over him until that fight. What happens when he gets hit? Hmm. You're not going to get uh, yeah. hit with a much better right hand than that, are you really? No. No, no answered no. a lot of questions that night. Um, who's your favourite fighter ever? It's Ali. Yeah. In terms of what he did in the ring, it's Sugar Ray Leonard. But the whole picture, you know, what he did for the sport and, and the impact he made and, and what he did as a heavyweight. You know, if you watch his performance against... Cleveland Williams in in '66. It's I mean you'd be proud to throw those shots as a featherweight. And the first Liston fight, it's almost it's yeah. almost like he glides over the canvas. Yeah, and you imagine you imagine the mind game before that fight and what Liston's done to Patterson and Ingemar Johansson. And, you know, it's really. Um, I think I was lucky to have been a teenager. You know, for all I wish I could have mm. covered the career of of Ali. I wish I, I wish. Um, I still think I was lucky to have been a teenager, an impressionable teenager around that time. But I was much more aware and um, much more able to understand what Sugar Ray Leonard did because I was more into boxing mm. at that time. And as a commentator, I've, I've been lucky enough to be around Floyd Mayweather and, and the big Floyd Mayweather nights. And, and they're, they're something special as well in a, in a very different way. You know, he, he brings a very different dynamic to boxing, but he's fascinating to be around. You see, see the big mm. hotels in Vegas change over the course of the week when, when Mayweather's in town. It's like Tommy Tourist all through Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then suddenly the whole nature of the hotel changes for Thursday and Friday, and it's, mm. it's um, a very different atmosphere. says a lot about how much he brought financially to the sport. They pushed his jail sentence back so that he could box yeah. so it brought in a, something like a billion to the Las Vegas economy yeah. just on that weekend alone yeah almost unheard Deferred of that. his sentence by six months yeah yeah, yeah. Um, he's another one that don't feel like he'll get his dues for another maybe 15-20 years once people have just forgotten the the stuff outside of the ring and his his personality maybe his, his skill yeah I mean when appreciated. you talk about dues you look at the money he's earned so there was a market for him and, and that's the market he reached out to and I think you know there comes a time when you all grow up as businessmen as well as boxers. And look, he was promoted. Um, and I spoke to Bob Aaron just about this in the, the recent week when Amir Khan fought Terence Crawford. Crawford's now promoted by, by Bob Aram. And, and he was talking about how Mayweather saw what he, Bob Aram, didn't see in 2005, 2006. And this is 40 years into Aram's mm. promotional career. And he said that, Mayweather was looking to market himself to this black urban audience, which Bob Aram just didn't understand. The black people he knew were a very different generation, very different type. And so he couldn't understand what Mayweather was aiming at. And so Mayweather bought himself out of the contract, paid $750,000 to get free of, of Bob Aram. And you calculate what he's earned now. Mm. You know, I mean, it, it, you're edging towards a billion dollars. <laughs> you know, and this is, this is a lad who was held up in front of him by his dad was held up as a shield against his uncle who was about to shoot his dad mm. as a kid that's the background he came from and yet that's how sharp a businessman he is so you know he he grew as a as a man as well as a as well as a fighter i think as a as a boxer he was born into the wrong era you know the, the likes of willie pep who were you know were marveled at because of their defensive genius he he belongs maybe in in that kind of era but his personality sold a fight like 
you know, like no one of the of the current generation. He mm. was very, very special. And I keep hearing this refrain that, that Mayweather only ever fought boxers when they were past their best. Yeah. Look what Cotto went on to become world middleweight champion. Look what Alvarez has done since. Yeah. Manny Pacquiao beat Timothy Bradley. Juan Manuel Marquez knocked out Manny Pacquiao. Mm. Look at the form since Mayweather beat I think the, that, the Cotto one was the best one for me. Staggering. Because it was so... It was so easy. Hmm. Not the Cotto, sorry, Canelo win. Yeah, was, the Cotto was actually quite a tough fight. Yeah, the Canelo win, he made look it was, it was just easy. comfortable. Mm. And what, look at what Canelo's doing right mm. now, you know what I mean? And, and one just scored it a draw. Yeah, CJ Ross. Yeah. Scary, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Before we go, though, Likewise. we have a, a section that we, we do called the 32-second challenge. So it's word association. <laughs> I'm going to read you out a list of words, and then you're just going to say the first thing that comes into your head. So this is the 32-second challenge uh, with Mike Costello. Okay, Mike, first words, uh, the microphone. Sure. Commentary. Lynn Amateur Boxing Club. Glory days. John Rawlin. Predecessor. Uh, fight nights. The best. Froch Kessler 2. Unforgettable. Steve Bunce. There forever. <laughs> uh, boxing or athletics? Boxing. Nerves? Every night. Fight you wish you'd commentated on? Ali versus Foreman. Oh, great. Rumble in the jungle. Super Saturday? The best night of commentary ever. The one round of boxing that you would take to a desert island? Corrales against Castillo. Nice round. Ten. Unbelievable round. Carl Frampton? <laughs> the champ. Good the mind. champ. Former. What a pleasure, Mike. <laughs> it's been Always one of my favourites. That was good. Always really enjoyable. Thanks, yeah. Mike. Thank you, mate. Mike, thank Thanks, you so Chris. much. Yeah, cheers. Okay, well, that's been round 15 of TK with Mike Costello done and dusted. Remember to check out some of our other episodes. David Hay, Chris Eubank Sr., Joshua Boatsy, David Price, Jamie Carragher, and many, many more. And we will see you again in seven days' time. Thanks for watching. You've been listening to TKO on Joe. Together with 32 Red.